So in a way, I don't think embracing your inner weirdo doesn't mean being that out of step. You know, it means relaxing and being yourself. And you now there's this phrase now, bring your whole self to work. And that's very hard for a lot of people to do because it's a risk to be vulnerable and to be open and to be a little out of step with everybody. But that's what makes you interesting. To have a variety of interests that aren't shared, to have some core interests, perhaps in the company you work for, or you know some kind of common thing you can establish a relationship on at first. But then it's those differences that make us all interesting and give us things to talk about. Welcome to the Embrace Your Inner Weirdo podcast, where paradigms shift. Impossible becomes I'm possible, and weirdos are exposed for who they really are pure geniuses with your host who walked from Chicago to LA just because he could the one and only Mr. Weirdo aka Rashid Huda. Well good morning Holly how are you? Good morning Rashid I'm fine thank you how are you? I am blessed as always enjoying life this wonderful cold weather that we have, which uh, if you talk to Mitch Mitchell, he's just going to slap us both, calling it cold weather. Some days he's warmer than we are in Houston. I find that amazing that New York can be warmer than Houston. Yeah. Not today. <laughs> it is weird. Speaking of weird, when I ask you to be my guest, you you ask me what makes you think I'm weird. And I don't know too many too many people who go to college at twelve. If that's not weird, uh, no, that's not weird at all. How did that happen? My mother was a professional student. Did you say a professional yes. student? I don't remember a time when she was not in college classes from the time I was a baby until at least 12, 13 years old. Okay. And she used to say that one of the reasons I learned to read so early was that she and my dad started college about the time that I was born. And she used to take me to some of her college classes as a baby. And she used to study by reading chapters of her psychology textbook to me when I was a baby. And she would hold me in her arms and she would read to me while she was studying. And her point was, it didn't matter what she was reading. I wasn't going to understand it as an infant anyway. But I was being held and loved, and I was hearing words and the sound of language. So she also put books in my crib to make sure they were familiar and comfortable objects. And she took classes, and I was bored the summer I was 12, between sixth and seventh grade. And I didn't want to just hang out. I was a little bit of an introvert. I didn't just want to hang out with kids. I wasn't into sports and just didn't want to spend my summer riding my bike around the lake again. And I looked at her schedule of classes from Kent State University and I said, do you think they would let me take a class? I, I like to say I invented take your daughter to work day long before there was a take your daughter to work day because I wanted to see what my mother did all day. That was what I thought as her work. And she looked at me and she said, I think 
they will say no because you're too young, but we could ask somebody. And my dad had worked at Kent State University and he knew people there. And so he made some contacts and they took me to lunch. They had what's called the Honors and Experimental College. So as it turned out, I was an experiment. They took me to lunch and instead of letting me down easy, by the end of lunch, they were getting ready to admit me as an audit student which I didn't care. I just wanted to do it for fun, didn't care about credit, but halfway through the first quarter, the teacher, who was the French teacher, I'd already had three years of French, so this was not academically challenging to me, so I took French, and she, she went to bat for me and said, I really should get the credit that I'd earned because I was setting the curve in the class. <laughs> So they asked me, I had no idea what that meant. I did not even know that if I got a B, I would blow my 4.0 average forever. I didn't know what a 4.0 average was or what it meant. I didn't care. I was having fun, but I thought, sure, why not earn credit? <laughs> if I did a thing, why not earn the credit? And uh, I said, sure, I'd like to do that. Fortunately for me, I got A's in both the first and second summer quarter at Kent State. So by the end of the summer, I had eight quarter hours as an undergraduate at the university level. I went back to seventh grade thinking nobody would be the wiser. And of course, I get into class and now the, the, the other kids who already thought I was weird, they're giving me funny looks and I don't know why they're funnier than usual. And it comes out that it has been a newsworthy event that I attended college classes during the summer. Oh. <laughs> Not because I was so newsworthy, but because the youngest student at age 12 was attending at the same time as the oldest student they ever had. And I think he was 96. I remember his name. <laughs> But we were in the newspaper because it was funny that they had the youngest student and the oldest student ever to attend Kent State University were there at the same time. So that That's was that was when I became a certified weirdo. Certified weirdo. So how long did weirdo. how long did it take you to embrace that certified weirdo of yours? It was actually fine because. I was always a little out of step with my classmates. Like I said, I love to read. I love to study. I liked school. They wanted to do sports. I had no interest whatsoever in sports and I was bad at sports. I was really, really bad. So might as well embrace it. Right. I, I enjoyed it. I was already, I was already a bit of an outcast. So I just went with it. Um, but we also moved, we moved to a different state. Um, and I, I think I was always a little bit out of step until I went full time to college. And I did that. I, I took more classes in Florida. My actually enrolled in Florida and they wanted to tell me I couldn't be an incoming freshman, even though I only wanted to take classes in the evening and during the summer, like I already had. They said, no, we can't admit you because you have to be 16 to be an incoming freshman. And my dad was standing there next to me and he opened up his briefcase and he said, what about a transfer student with a 4.0 average from an accredited four-year university? Now we're standing in a two-year community college in Daytona Beach. And they just looked at him funny and he pulled out my transcript from Kent State. 
And they looked at it and they said, well, we don't have any rules about age of transfer students because they've never anticipated the need to have one. So they just laughed and said, well, enroll her. How old were you? I was 14. And then when I was 15, I kind of did the math and realized that I could get my associate in arts degree if I could go full time for the next year. And I couldn't do that without technically dropping out. So I petitioned the superintendent of schools to release me. I didn't really play it through until years later that I was technically a high school dropout at that point. And I remember the principal of the school doing an exit interview with me and saying, but I don't worry that you're not academically ready, but don't you feel you will have missed out on a huge part of your life by never having a senior prom? And I think, oh, lady, there will be other dances. Uh, the, the idea of going to my senior prom, just, I would have rather gripped my fingernails out one by one. And so they let me go. Years later, it occurred to me that I was a high school dropout. And I thought this was really terribly funny because by the time I realized I had an associate in arts degree, I had a bachelor of arts degree, I had a law degree. And I was, my, my daughter said, why don't you go back and get your GED and get your high school diploma? And my first thought was, I'm not even sure that I could pass the test. <laughs> and my second was, why would I want to do that? And she said, just set a good example for me. <laughs> and I said, you know what? Follow the bad example I already set. It's fine. Just, just go for it. <laughs> well, I can tell that she's your daughter. Oh, yeah. Well, she went when she went and got her master's degree, she uh, earned, I think it was a 3.989 GPA, which blew my GPA and her father's right out of the water. <laughs> and so she missed something along the way to keep her from 4.0. Oh, yeah, that one that one credit hour. She said <laughs> that one credit hour was always going to haunt her. Oh. I had that one credit hour myself. I actually blew my 4.0 in my first two years with a one credit hour voice class, mm -hmm. which I mm -hmm. basically took to get over my fear of singing in public because I love to sing. But I, when I heard my voice on a tape recorder when I was 10 years old, I shut up and I would sing, but only only in my room with the door locked and the radio turned on full blast. <laughs> so I, I know that. Credit hour, I took this one credit hour class and I, uh, we had the door shut and I remember the instructor saying, sing a scale. And I got through do, re, mi, somebody opened the door and I cried for the rest of the hour. <laughs> but I managed to earn a B in that class. So I was so proud of that B because I had to sing in front of the entire music faculty in three different languages. And that was an accomplishment. <laughs> so you said you have a law degree. Right. Are you a lawyer? I am not a lawyer. I, by the time I earned my law degree, I was already working um, as a technical writer for a major oil company. and. 
You know, it's it's like people hear about writers earning six-figure advances. They they think of Stephen King. Most writers are working writers who have to work two, three jobs just to keep food on the table. And I was doing pretty well in corporate America. I was, you know, making a decent salary. I would have actually had to take a pay cut to be a starting attorney. And I had my daughter the, right before the start of my third year of law school. And I realized I really didn't want to have to take my work home with me. If I were a starting attorney, there was always a risk, depending on what kind of law I went into, there was a risk. Somebody might go to jail. Somebody might get the death penalty. Somebody might lose their house or lose their shirt or lose their family. But I could make a typo and everybody would just laugh and feel superior to the stupid technical writer. It wasn't going to be an earth-shaking disaster. And I was earning enough money. I didn't really want to take that pay cut. And I really didn't want to have to take the job home with me every night. I really never regretted not becoming an attorney. The closest I've come was managing warranty documentation and being the liaison with the legal department. So that was that was fun. You know, get, getting to play good cop, bad cop with the lawyers is, is always fun. Okay. People now, don't want to talk to the lawyers. They think lawyers are scary people, so they don't want to talk to the lawyers. So when I tell them something and they want to argue it and have me go back to the legal department for the 50th time about the same issue, I say, well, you call the lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> I would be emailing the lawyers saying, yeah, you know. You want to play good cop or bad cop today? <laughs> <laughs> now, you have an unusual last name for an Anglo-American, for a lack of better word. How did that come Are you about? Profiling me, at Rashid. You think I don't look like a Jahangiri? No, you don't. <laughs> uh, I don't know if I'm profiling you or not, but. Uh, yeah. Um, how did that come about? Well, I married it. I you know, see. It was funny. Back in 1984, my husband my husband is from Iran. And back in 1984, and you would think people would know where that was. I remember going to a store and the, the clerk looked at my name back, you know, when you wrote checks for things. And the clerk looked at the check and looked at my name and she said, what kind of a name is that? I said, last. And it took her a second. Oh, right. But where's it from? I said it was a wedding present from my husband. For another B. Oh, but where's your husband from? I said, Iran. Where's that? <laughs> I didn't miss a beat. Montana. She said, is it pretty? I said, it's gorgeous. You really should go visit. <laughs> yeah, because back in those days, they didn't call it Iran. They called it Iran. Iran. <laughs> so, so how did you meet Some people girl? still do. I mean, we live in Texas, right? Some people yeah. still do. <laughs> Iraq and Iran. <clears throat> how did you meet your husband? I met my husband in college. We were we were both going to the University of Tulsa. 
sounds awful. I was dating. Hold on. Last, last year you mentioned Florida in Kent, Kent University. How, how did you I end up in Oklahoma, Tulsa? Oh, so I, you know, I, I told you when I was living in Florida, I was going to college. I got my associate in arts degree when I was 15. Mm -hmm. So I was college junior, but I was barely 16. And my dad got a job offer in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Ah. Now it was one thing to go to college and live in an apartment three hours away from my parents, but it was quite another thing to go to college and live in an apartment with my parents three states away. And mm -hmm. I knew I wasn't ready. They, they didn't say, oh, you can't do this. We talked about it and I knew I really wasn't ready to be living on my own that far away from my, my familial safety net. So I went to Tulsa, Oklahoma with them okay. and applied to several colleges there. Oral Roberts University wouldn't even take my application because I didn't have a high school diploma. They wouldn't consider it. Even though, you, even though you had so college credits. I had an associate in arts degree. I, I didn't just have college credit. I had a two-year degree, but because I didn't have a high school diploma, they wouldn't even take my application. So I went to the University of Tulsa. We went in person and they said they would admit me on a probationary basis. My dad was sitting there again. I, mean, I would have just nodded along and gone for it. He said, no. She has almost a 4.0 and an associate in arts degree from two accredited colleges. And she has earned the right to be a student in good standing here. And you will accept her as a student in good standing or she can cool her heels for a year or two and go travel or do something else. <laughs> they left the room and he looked at me and said, are you okay with that? And I said, sure. <laughs> I was a very easygoing child. Whatever. So they came, back and they, said, they, came, they came back into the room and they said, do you really feel that strongly about this? And we said, yes. And they said, okay, fine. We'll admit her as a student in good standing. So yeah, I went to the University of Tulsa. And uh, that's where I met my husband. <laughs> I didn't actually start to date him though until we had both graduated. You had he started, oh. Yeah, he started young, too, and uh, he had his master's degree before I even started law school, but we didn't we didn't start dating until after we were out of college, but we had met there. Okay, okay. Um, a lawyer, someone with a law degree that does not practice law, someone who... There are a lot of us. There are a lot of us who didn't practice law. <laughs> Well, you never we realized up. we realized at some point, Rashid, that being argumentative was not the major criteria for being a good lawyer. Yeah. You told me that. <laughs> but not too many of them never practice law. A lot of people stop practicing law. Um, a college dropout with a law degree. I mean, no, a high, high school, school dropout. High school, high school dropout. dropout. A high school dropout with a college degree. And you wanted me to tell you why I thought you were weird. 
maybe you, you maybe you can give me a lesson or two on being weird. Lesson or two on being weird. Hmm. <laughs> I think you just have to come by it naturally. But having said that, I think you also have to embrace it. Yeah, the name of your podcast is Embrace Your Inner Weirdo. Mm -hmm. And I think it helps if you accept who you are. And I think we, we talked about this once before. I remember when I was a teen seeing those bumper stickers that said, I found it. And I remember seeing people go off into the wilderness to find themselves. And I, I never felt that urge. I never understood that urge because I'm right here and I am who I am. And I've always been who I am. And it never occurred to me to try to conform to fit somebody else's mold, which I credit my parents with that a lot. I'm sure it helped that I was an only child and they accepted me for who I was. They appreciated my weirdnesses, my, my quirks. Um, but also I just never felt that lack. I never felt like I needed to fit in. It, it baffled me that I didn't. And I think I, one of the reasons I wanted to start college early is that older people, college age people always tended to accept people for who they are. They were all different. They came from different states, different cultures, different countries. They were more open to accepting those differences. They were more mature about it. They didn't, there wasn't so much peer pressure. You know, middle school and high school, it's all about peer pressure. Well, the reason and you didn't. You do what? I said, the reason you didn't have peer pressure is because you weren't really a peer. Right. I, you know, I said for a long time and it's probably not, yeah, no, I said for a long time and it's probably not fair. I mean, I didn't start college early because I was some freaky genius. I started college early because I was really interested in learning things. And honestly, that first, the first two classes I took were French and I had already studied French for three years. So it wasn't academically difficult. And I was already comfortable with older people, my parents, my grandparents. So it wasn't, it wasn't some freaky genius kind of thing for me to go to college early. I did not get along with my peers, my so-called peers until I was in my twenties, thirties, maybe. And I found people my own age who shared interests and life experiences with me. And then I started to get along with people my own age. I did, it wasn't that I didn't like my peers. It's, I didn't feel like they liked me. I didn't feel like they really accepted me, but I guess I was lucky in some ways that the bullying was mostly just psychological. It was just mostly snarky. You know, seventh grade girls can be very snarky. And I'm, you know, I'm friends now with some of the people I went to middle school with, <laughs> but it, it took till we were in our thirties or forties before we found out we, you know, then had gone on and had life experiences that we could share and we could find common interests. Speaking of uh, shared, shared life experiences, you have a group of mothers all across the world 
that you share. Tell us about that. When I was pregnant with my second child, my, my, my daughter was already seven. I was online and I found a Usenet group back in the days of Usenet. Some of your some of your listeners will have to Google that. I found a group of women who were pregnant and we figured out who was due at about the same time. So we were going through the same stages of pregnancy and we formed a an email list of the group of us that got along with each other we were all due in march of 1996 and we were literally the first of the email due date lists now it's a thing it became a thing because two of the moms on our list started a magazine online they started easing and they started setting up due date lists for all the different months and it caught on i honestly thought that six months after our babies were born we would drift apart we would get busy we would not keep in touch but 27 years later most of us are still in touch many of us have met face to face we've seen each other through all kinds of life events from pregnancy to childbirth to raising children, to dealing with the challenges that our kids faced, uh, in some cases to the loss of a child, uh, to the aging parents and taking care of aging parents, to divorce or death of spouse, to uh, you know, just pretty much everything. And we've been friends. So I'd say there's about 40 families that are still on that same original list that still keep in touch. And we have emails going out every day. Cool. No. It's very cool. I've even camped on top of an active volcano with my son and some of these, we call, we call ourselves the March Moms. And we've even camped, we've hung out and san antonio or dallas you know and some of them have even hung out in iceland wait did you say you camped on top of an active volcano technically active dormant uh we we camped at mount lassen in northern california which is technically dormant but still active and there's still geothermal areas and we hiked up to some of those geothermal areas and we camped by the lake and yeah in black bear territory uh the funny thing was when i made the reservations i, I got a warning this is black bear territory <laughs> and i thought about canceling right then and there but i didn't we got up there and they have bear boxes and they have secure trash bins to basically to protect the bears from getting too cozy with humans and endangering their lives but I did wonder why we were sleeping in a nylon tent and putting the food in the bear box when we could have hung the food from a tree and we could have slept in the bear box. <laughs> yeah, that makes, makes too much sense. It makes too much sense. But we, no, we didn't have any problem. But I will say that the last night we were there, I got up and went to the comfort station. And by this time, I'd gotten a little a little bit too complacent and I didn't take my flashlight with me because I was very close and they had a, a motion sensing light 
on the comfort station so I could practically make it there with my eyes closed. So I was walking along and on my way there, there was a bush next to me about my height. And I'm 5'10", 5'11". And I hear about ear level. <laughs> and I remember thinking kind of calmly, kind of vaguely, hmm, what would make that sound right next to my ear? <laughs> Maybe I should go back and get the flashlight. So I go back to the tent very slowly. I go back to the tent. I get the flashlight. I see nothing. Use the comfort station. Don't think about it. My son's in the tent sleeping. I didn't even wake him up. I go back. I go back to sleep. The next morning, we hear that around 4.30 in the morning, which was the same time I was up, someone had spotted a black bear in our camping loop. So I think we had a, we had a little moment. I see and so now I'm I'm really a lot less afraid of black bears. I would camp again in black bear habitat, no problem. As long as we're all courteous and they're well fed, that's all great. Ignorant is blessed. Yes, sometimes it really is. If somebody wanted to embrace their inner weirdo, but they're afraid of for whatever reason, other than telling them to just be themselves, what other advice would you have? I wish I had advice for that one. I honestly, I'm not sure because I don't understand being afraid of your inner weirdo. I, I, it doesn't compute. What it is, I think, is just being afraid of what other people think. Exactly. Right? How, would you be afraid, or, how would you be afraid of yourself? You're, you're afraid of acceptance and not being accepted by other people. And I, I do kind of get that. When I was young, fresh out of college, starting a corporate job, I had this notion that I needed to conform a little bit. Uh, but by this time, I didn't even know how really to conform. I, my, I went to my first job. <laughs> Here's an example of where, where you go wrong in your thinking. I went to my first job, which was a, a very blue collar job. My job was to um, use a letter opener to break out reports that were on pin feed, continuous pin feed paper. I was I was separating reports at the perforation, or I was standing at a heat sealer, plastic heat sealer that made bags. So you put the reports into plastic sheeting and you pull down this gigantic machinery that would cauterize the plastic and seal it off. And, and then there was another machine that would take the carbon out of multi-part forms. And this is why I, don't have my uh, my class ring today because I basically obliterated the stone on this thing. It had sandpaper on these rollers and you would run it through really fast and it would slice off the edges of the paper. And I was showing up to this job wearing a dress and heels. Until my boss about a month, two months in said, why don't you wear jeans and tennis shoes? Because I thought corporate, you know, I had to dress for success and wear the dress and heels and, and instead of dressing appropriately for the surrounding. So in a way, I don't think embracing your inner weirdo doesn't mean being that out of step. You know, it means relaxing and being yourself. And you know, there's this phrase now, bring your whole self to work. And that's very hard for a lot of people to do because it's a risk to be vulnerable and to be open and to be a little out of step with everybody, but that's what makes you interesting. To have a variety of interests that aren't shared, 
to have some core interests, perhaps in the company you work for, or you know, some kind of common thing you can establish a relationship on at first. But then it's those differences that make us all interesting and give us things to talk about. Because if we all shared the same experiences and we all shared the same interests, it would be kind of boring. That is like, yeah, I know. <laughs> that is very, very true. That is absolutely true. So you like to write, you said. You were a technical writer. Mm -hmm. What is a technical writer and what other kind of writing have you done? Well, when I first landed a job as a technical writer, I had no idea what a technical writer was. A technical writer is basically the person who writes those user guides that nobody likes to read. And I didn't, I don't like to read them for the most part. So I try to write them for people like me who don't like to read. Get me in, get me out, tell me what I need to know, and then let me put the book aside and accomplish what I want to accomplish. But frankly, my, after that first job that I just told you about, I got promoted and I was a systems engineer for two years and I had no idea what that was either. I had no computer science background, so talk about weird. Uh, at some point, someone caught me taking really good notes so that I didn't have to ask the same questions 50 times. And they said, how would you like to be a technical writer? I had no idea what that was, but it had the word writer in it. So sign me up, <laughs> be a technical writer. And my boss had been an experienced technical writer in the Navy, and he took me under his wing and showed me the ropes and said, yeah, I know you like to write fiction and poetry. So you can write that on your own time. He said, you'll get a lot of red marks here and you'll, um, you'll have a lot of reviewers and they'll have conflicting feedback and you'll have to reconcile that feedback and you'll have to do it quickly. Just do it. It's a work for hire. Let go of any pride of authorship. Cry on your own time. You know, <laughs> and I said, I'm not crying over anything. I, I love this. And I, as long as I had the word writer in it, I was just, I would write anything. People say, what do you write? And I'll say, ask me what I won't write because I'll write anything fiction, poetry, technical writing, the blurb on the back of a cereal box. You know, I used to I used to joke with another writer that we wrote the blurbs in the back of cereal boxes and the cue cards for Vanna White on Wheel of Fortune. Anything that somebody will let us write and finds value in. But uh, that paid the bills really well. So, so writing fiction came on my spare time and I write children's books. and. You, you said you write children's book, books. Books. I have three um, published children's books. Three published books. Right. Awesome. So you could be a freelance writer if you wanted to, or are you? Oh, I one? was. I was for years. I did freelance on the side. <laughs> what advice would you have for somebody who's, let's say, looking for a second income, side hustle, whatever you want to call it, and who likes writing, how do you become a freelance writer? Well, first of all, writing is not a ticket to get rich quick. So if you have heard on the internet that you can get rich in your sleep by writing, you've, you've bought into a lie. The first advice I would give to somebody who really loves to write 
and you have to enjoy writing. Don't don't even try to do this if you hate to write, but somebody's convinced you that this is the way to make money. Get a job at McDonald's. Get a job slinging burgers somewhere because it's easier and you'll make money faster and more reliably. But if you really love to write, know the tools of your trade. You, you can't be a carpenter if you don't know all the tools of your trade. You cannot be a writer if you don't know spelling, grammar, punctuation, and have some modicum of curiosity to do the research and some imagination. If you have all those things, then you can make a go of being a writer. If you want to be a freelance writer, my number one piece of advice is be the reliable workhorse that the editor can count on for X number of words by this deadline. I got more freelance work when the first writer had failed to show up for the job, failed to deliver on time. I used to get a call at 10 o'clock at night from an editor who needed 400 words by 8 a.m. and knew they could count on me to supply 400 words on topic by 8 a.m. And her comment was, I don't need deathless prose. What I need is 400 words on the topic assigned by 8 a.m. And that's what has value to me. And that's how I got paid well to be a freelance writer, was to be a reliable writer and a workhorse, because it is work. It's fun, but you have to approach it with some discipline. Good advice. Any kind of work, um, especially any kind of entrepreneurial work where you're your own boss, you have to have the discipline. Otherwise, um, yep, you're not going anywhere. Mm -hmm. Well, unfortunately, Holly... unfortunately for me, I learned in college that I could wait until the last minute, do the assignment, turn it in. I, yeah, if I had six weeks to write a thing, I would write it at 2 a.m. in the morning it was due. And I would get an A. And that actually helped a lot in some ways. It's not a great way to live, but it's a great skill when you want to land those jobs where somebody else has had that six weeks and they can't deliver. It's a good way to land those jobs if you can still deliver on promise. So what do you do these days? I'm retired. I, I, um, I've been working on fiction, poetry, but mostly also enjoying retirement, traveling with my husband, hanging out with my grandson, visiting with family. So you're enjoying life. Enjoying life. Enjoying how, life. How long did you have to wait to do that? Uh, let's see. I <laughs> I retired two years ago, so I was fifty-six. I retired on April Fool's Day. And um right at the start of the pandemic. So I had a lot of coworkers thought this was a bad joke. I said, no, no, no. If you have questions, you really need to ask me now because on April 1st, I'm gone. And they're like, oh, April Fool's Day. Uh -huh, uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> really and truly on April 1st, I'm gone. And of course, we all know that the pandemic, we started the lockdowns around the 25th, mid-March, around the 25th of March, we were pretty yeah. much not traveling. We weren't doing it. 
So all the plans I had to retire and travel and even play tourist here in Houston. I, I, you know, I wanted to play tourist in my own city because I've lived here since 94. And I still don't know my way around everywhere. And I haven't seen all the landmarks. I've never been to the cistern. Um, that kind of went poof for a year. And I, it wasn't until last year we started, you know, things started to open up a little bit and we started to travel a little bit more. And we, we had a great year last year. Super. Yeah. Well, if somebody wanted to get in touch with you, um, tap into your wisdom, give you some money, whatever, where would they find you? It's really hard not to find me. All they have to do is Google my name. My my website is jahangiri.us, and I think you're going to put the link on the. I will. Mm -hmm. And if you click the link about me, you'll find all the other links, to all the other places where you can find me, or you can just Google my name, and you'll find me. I'm hard to lose. I like the like the Arc de Triomphe in Paris. I when I was 15, we went to the we went to Paris, and I, my parents thought that they had a built-in translator. Like I said, I took French for about six years eight years at that point it was six and uh i said we left the triumph and this woman looked at me like i was a slug that crawled out from under a rock <laughs> and so i got very intimidated and couldn't say another word but i understood later because once you find the arc de triomphe you can't lose it all the roads lead back to it so you're driving around paris and you just there it is and I just, I thought she was looking at me like I was stupid because I was mispronouncing something. Well, Holly, it's been a pleasure talking with you. I appreciate your time and sharing your life history, your wisdom, your quirks, your weirdness, uh, your sense of humor. And uh, thank you. Well, thank you. And I'm glad you decided to embrace your inner weirdo. Thank you for listening to the Embrace Your Inner Weirdo podcast, where we debunk the myth that weirdo is a four-letter word. Remember to subscribe, rate, and review. Share it with a friend and leave a tip if you like the show.